1: Number
0: 30, 30. The following program is sponsored by Truth Incorporated.
1: Today on Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy.
2: What does Isaiah 66 say that God loves the man or the woman who trembles at his word? Because one of the things the devil loves to do is to smuggle into the life of the ministry a sense of familiarity and we have lost the wonder of it and we have lost the weirdiness of it trivializing the gospel.
1: Welcome to Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy. I'm your host, Wayne Shepherd. Before GPS or even compasses, ships had to rely on the stars to guide their way, and losing sight of that guiding light led to dire consequences. Today, Pastor Philip reminds us to rely on the guiding light of faithful Bible preaching. We face spiritual danger when we don't hold fast to sound teaching. Stay tuned as Philip discusses the risks of drifting and the rewards and joys of remaining faithful. It's a sermon titled Stay on Message.
2: Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, and what we have here is a bold challenge to a young minister and a man of God to live without apology. One of the key words in 2 Timothy is unashamed, and we have challenged ourselves with that regard. In fact, the whole series has been called Without Apology, and I hope that you and I will live lives without apology lives committed to the gospel, lives unbendingly loyal to the glory and the person of Jesus Christ. So 2 Timothy 4 verses 1 to 5, the message I've called, stay on message, stay on message. While running for governor of the state of Texas, George W. Bush in 1994 proved to be a relentlessly disciplined candidate. He ran on four issues and four issues only. Like a carpenter with a hammer in his hand, he hit those, those nails repeatedly. He pounded his fourfold message with every opportunity he could get. In fact, years later, those on both sides of the political spectrum can remember those four platforms. They were education reform— welfare reform, juvenile justice reform, and tort reform. In fact, so persistent was his messaging that he drove the press corps crazy. In fact, on one occasion, an exasperated reporter asked Bush what was his fifth goal if he became governor, to which he replied, to pass the first four. <laughs> now, that's a man on message. As he sought to persuade the electorate in Texas to elect him governor, no one could dissuade him from his message. He pounded it relentlessly. He had four things he wanted to do, and the fifth thing was to get the first four things done. I love it. And you know what? It paid off. Because in 1994, he beat the incumbent, Ann Richards, and became the governor of Texas, and little did we know as a nation that was the first step on the path to the White House. Now, as we turn to 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 5, the Apostle Paul speaks to his young protege in the Faith Timothy, and he urges him to stay on message. What does he say? Preach the word. Do it when it's convenient. Do it when it's comfortable. Also, do it when it's inconvenient. Do it when it's uncomfortable. Paul urges Timothy to consistently preach what Paul has persistently preached across his lifetime, which is the whole counsel of God and the gospel of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Paul's death is imminent. Let's remind ourselves. This is Paul's last letter. He's writing to his young son in the faith, Timothy. Paul's in Rome. Timothy's in Ephesus. This is Paul's last will and testament. We're round about A.D. 67. Paul will be shortly martyred. After 30 years of faithful and fruitful laboring for Jesus Christ, he's about to hand the baton off what we have here is a kind of changing of the guard. And Paul desperately wants to know before his death that Timothy will stay on message, that he will remain without apology, a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's death is imminent, and he needs to be comforted by a knowledge of the commitment of this young man to proclaim the gospel faithfully. This is Paul's dying wish. Now, let me say two things by way of further introduction. Number one, this section, 2 Timothy 4, 1-5, constitutes the emotional climax of the book. Remember, Paul is, you know, only a few steps away from the gallows, so to speak. So you can imagine the emotive nature of his writing here. His martyrdom is impending, the gospel's continuity is at stake. So these words are freighted with emotion, solemnity and weight. It exceeds all previous exhortations to that regard. I mean, Timothy's heard many things from Paul, but nothing equals this: I'm about to depart." I've run the race. I've kept the faith. Now, tell me, will you? Maybe this has been your experience because what you've got here in terms of a picture is a father lying on a deathbed with his sons around the bed. And at some point, that old man reaches out his hand and grips the hand of one of his sons and says, "'Take care of mother. Run the business.'" take care of your sisters. It's that emotional. It's Paul gripping the hand of Timothy at his deathbed and saying, preach the word. This is the emotional climax of the book. It's the emotional climax of Paul's life. And secondly, it's the centerpiece of the letter. Because here, Paul presses home with passion a desire to see Timothy commit himself to the preaching of God's Word. This call to preach the Word is one of a few passages that directly addresses this issue. And yet among those few passages, it's without rivalry in terms of explicit instruction. Fundamentally, Timothy, you're to form and shape your pastoral ministry around the preaching of the Word. It's not just that But fundamentally, it is that. It's what Jesus said to Peter in his dying hours on the earth, feed the sheep. So preeminently, young Timothy as a pastor is to give himself, as we would read in Acts 6-4, to the Word and to prayer. This is to be a consuming task. He's already said, Hasn't he in his first letter in chapter 4? Give yourself completely to these things. The reading of the Word and its exposition, the study of the text, the shepherding of the flock. Preaching is a consuming task. It requires exhaustive study, prayer, personal obedience, and compelling communication. And it's all here. So let's begin to look at the text. And you know what? Well, it has direct application to the preacher, to guys like me and our elders and our pastors. Indirectly, it has something to say to you because it will help you define your expectation for any pastor. It will help a church choose its leaders and call its pastors And thirdly, it will rebuke many contemporary pastors who do not see themselves as preachers. So hang in with me. If not for your sake, for my sake. Because this is my job description. In fact, when I was at Shepherds this week, the panel was Dr. MacArthur and Mark Dever and Al Mohler and Ligon Duncan. And at one particular point, Austin Duncan asked them, you know, how would you promote preaching in the life of the church? To which Mark Dever replied, well, I'd say to every pastor, don't be frightened to preach your job description. It was so heartening because I knew I was coming to a passage that had direct application to me, maybe an indirect application to you, but bear with me as I justify my existence. (laughs) I'm going to preach my job description. And let that be a standard you hold me to. Let that be what you keep in mind when there is a changing of the guard. These are the kind of men we're looking for. These are the kind of men we're sitting under. Preachers of the Word. And it is a rebuke to many contemporary pastors, because they do not see themselves as preachers or expositors. I think there's a whole lot of factors into that, which is the sermon itself, maybe more appropriate to seminary context, but I think there's confusion among pastors as to their role. The church today is being led by men who are working off a more worldly model for ministry than a pastoral model from the epistles. I think there's bone laziness as a factor too, because this is an all-consuming task. You know, and if you're going to be an expositor of God's Word, you're going to labor in the Word and doctrine. Just some guys don't want to give themselves to that. Or to be fair to some guys, their church doesn't give them the time to do that. Has them doing deacon work instead of the calling of a pastor and elder. I think there's also an absence of good preaching, so some guys don't even know what it looks like. Or they have an idea of what preaching is, which really is just a big rant. worldliness. Is a factor. Because as we'll see, there is an element of the church then and the church now that just want to heap to themselves feel good preachers. And that undermines the pulpit. I think there's a fear of being seen as authoritarian. Our culture has an allergic reaction to anything that's freighted with authority, that's a commanding word, it's what Al calls logophobia. You know, a fear of a commanding word. And you know what? <laughs> you better get over that fear as a pastor because you're told to preach, declare, herald the word of the king on a <laughs> So there's all kinds of factors that may be playing into the diminishing of the pulpit in the life of the church. But here is the job description of any faithful Pastor. And by God's grace, I have committed myself to living this out and will commit myself. When I was at Emmanuel Baptist Church, there was one old soul. Every Sunday morning, he would greet me. It was the same every Sunday morning. How's the preacher this morning? I love that. You're right. I'm here to preach the word. How's the preacher this morning? I wore that with a badge of honor. That's good. Paul is calling Timothy too here. So let's look at the text. We're going to cover a couple of things. If you want an outline, there's the coming, there's the charge, there's the contrast, and there's the continuity. Let's look at the coming. Verse 1 I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing. That's the coming the second appearing of Jesus Christ, and when he appears, so will his kingdom. That's a premillennial text, by the way, if you're thinking out your eschatology. I don't believe we're in the kingdom. I don't believe the church brings the kingdom. I believe the kingdom will come when the king comes. And that seems to be the implication here. His return will be premillennial. He will come before the kingdom, and when he comes, he'll set up the kingdom. Just a word for my amillennial friends. (laughs) I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. So here's the backdrop to preaching. Here's the backdrop to the pulpit. God's holy throne and the coming of Jesus Christ in glorious power at the end of the tribulation, with his saints to set up his kingdom to judge the nations. That's the stage that Paul sets for Timothy to preach. So what's the implication, guys? Timothy's preaching was to have a God-centered vision, a Christ-centered motive, and a judgment-centered perspective. I love what Elijah says before the wicked King Ahab. He comes with a message and he says, I'm not really standing before you. I'm declaring the word of God before whom I stand. Elijah preached with a God-centered vision and a judgment-centered perspective. That's why James will warn his readers and us not to be quick to take up the mantle of teacher because the teacher will be doubly judged. Judged. Hebrews 13.17, the elder will give an account for those souls under his charge. That's the language of the New Testament. Every sermon ought to begin right here. The throne of God, the coming of Jesus Christ, judgment, accountability, eternity, weighty things, a sense of God and eternity should indeed mark the preaching of the Scriptures. The triune God will be at the foreground, and eternity and judgment, heaven and hell will be at the background. And I think that's a challenge, and it's a rebuke. Because it seems when it comes to books on preaching and conferences on preaching, there's a fixation today in the contemporary church with the horizontal. Audience receptivity. Where's to connect with the audience. Communication techniques that will allow you to open hearts and minds. And you know what? I'm not against that wholesale. There's some good things to be said and some good things to be heard. But I'm concerned that there's a fixation about this, where man is the primary audience, where the seeker is the fixation of the preacher. That's not Paul's fixation. He doesn't mention man as the primary audience, I charge you therefore before God. That's his primary audience. The preacher ought to be marked by a fear of God. In fact, this word charge is a legal term. It's to make an oath in a courtroom in a very dramatic fashion, it's like Paul is grabbing Timothy by the scruff of the neck, hauling him before the judgment throne of God and saying, I make the promise that you will preach the Word. Because ultimately, this is where you're going to give an account for your ministry. People won't have the final judgment on the worth and value and impact of your ministry. God will. You know, what? my early experiences as a preacher at my home church at Rothkill Baptist in Belfast, Before you get up to preach or out to preach, you sat in what we called the vestry, which was a little adjacent room just off the pulpit area. And often a couple of the deacons would gather and we'd pray before the service, and then ultimately they'd go out, and you were left in there with your thoughts and your sermon notes and the ticking clock coming up to the seven o'clock hour in the evening service. And you started to think about what you were about to do, and to help you think about what you're about to do. They're in that little room that was just white walls, bare, and one text on the wall would be the words from the book of Genesis, thou God seest me. Now that's a verse out of the story of Abraham and Hagar, but it was put there purposely. As you We're about to open the door, turn left, and go up the four stairs into the pulpit of Rathcule Baptist. You went out with this idea, thou, God, seest me. You see my preparation. You see my notes and how they comport to the text of Scripture. You see my motive. You see my lack of love or love for your people or the loss that might be in that congregation. Thou, God, seest me. That pulls you up straight, I can tell you. Makes you take a second look at your notes. That makes you go back over the week in your preparation and your heart and your walk in the Spirit. Thou, God, seest me. That's a sobering and searching thing. And it's the right thing. It's the right text. It's the right note to send to the heart of the preacher before they open the book. Because that's what Paul's doing here. Therefore, before God, I charge you. Oh, we need to fear a sense of familiarity in the pulpit. What does is Isaiah 66 verse 2 say? That God loves the man or the woman who trembles at his word. Where is that trembling? Where is that seriousness? Where is that weariness? Because one of the things the devil loves to do is to smuggle into the soul of the pastor or into the life of the ministry a sense of Familiarity a sense of formality where we become accustomed to holy things, to the handling of God's Word, and we have lost the wonder of it, and we have lost the weightiness of it. I fear the day, and you ought to fear the day that dawns in the life of a minister when he can speak of great things and make them small, and he can speak of God and make him seem as nothing. That's the unforgivable sin cheapening Christ and trivializing the gospel and whispering about the great truths of heaven and hell and the judgment to come. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, I can forgive a man a bad sermon. I can forgive the preacher almost anything if he gives me a sense of God. And if he gives me something for my soul, if he gives me the sense that though he is inadequate in himself, he is handling something which is very great and glorious, if he gives me some dim glimpse of the majesty of the glory of God and the love of Christ my Savior and the magnificence of the gospel, if he does that, I am in his debt and I am profoundly grateful. That's a beautiful quote. I can forgive a man almost anything if he gives me a sense of God. That's what Paul was asking of Timothy in this charge that comes in the light of the word here, that Timothy, as you mount the stairs to the pulpit, realize that God sees you. And you're going to give an account for your sermon and for the souls and the spirit with which you preach the word. That's to the background and to the foreground is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Moment by moment, getting nearer and nearer. The kingdom's coming, the curtains coming down, the glories of heaven, the rewards of faithful service. Let that fire the pulpit.
1: That's Philip DeCoursey encouraging us to stay on message here on Know the Truth. But staying on message is only half the battle. We also have to share God's Word. And you can easily share these messages with others when you visit us online at ktt.org. Download individual broadcasts for free, send a link to a friend, or order the complete series on CD. Our study in Second Timothy is titled, Without Apology. And if you're new to know the truth, we want to send you a welcome gift. It's a message from our current series offering biblical principles for leadership development. More than ever, we need godly men and women to step up to lead. Request a free CD online at ktt.org or call 888-644-8811. Sharing God's Word can happen in a number of ways. Certainly, one-on-one talks are indispensable. But when you financially support the ministry of Know the Truth, you're bringing God's Word to people across the country. Both on the air and on the Internet, Know the Truth preaches the full counsel of God's Word with boldness, clarity, and conviction. Join us in that worthy effort by giving a one-time gift or committing as one of our monthly Truth Ambassadors. Join the team when you sign up online at ktt.org or call us at 888-644-8811. However you choose to give today, Philip has picked out a helpful resource just for you. It's a book by Ray Pritchard and Bob Briner titled The Leadership Lessons of Jesus, A Timeless Model for Today's Leaders. The world's leadership styles come and go, but you're invited to discover the timeless principles our Savior used to lead and inspire His followers. How will that change the way we lead? Find out when you request your copy of The Leadership Lessons of Jesus. You can give online at ktt.org or call 888-644-8811. So glad you tuned in today. I'm Wayne Shepherd inviting you back tomorrow for more Know the Truth. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free.